this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. Now, it's not often that I get to talk with colleagues about coquettish horses showing their bottoms to you and images of cats licking themselves. However, I take every opportunity to do that that is made available to me. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. Now, it's not often that I get to talk with colleagues about coquettish horses showing their bottoms to you and images of cats licking themselves. However, I take every opportunity to do that that is made available to me. And so I was really excited for lots of different reasons to talk with Roberta Wu today about her new book. So Roberta and I just um, finished talking about her book, Art Worlds, Artists, Images, and Audiences, in late 19th century Shanghai. This came out with University of Hawaii Press in 2014. And it's a really fascinating um, kind of way of opening out and, and taking us into late Qing Shanghai um, as a kind of emerging center of culture, of entertainment, and of art. So what the book does is it uses a particular figure, Ren Yu Ren Bonyan, as a fulcrum um, around which this story of shifting identities and relationships of artists and their audiences, um, kind of ways of connecting them, ways of creating community among them, are really um, transforming and being produced by the work and the effort of artists in late Qing Shanghai who are working and growing up and living in a context where there's a kind of explosion in print media, in newspapers, um, in publishing houses, and all of this is generating not just new kinds of images, but also new ways of looking and new ways of being an audience and being an artist. So the chapters, um, as you will hear us talking about in the next hour, explore these phenomena by taking us into different formats and forms and media and objects through which we can see these transformations happening. So we're going to talk about fans and fan shops. Um, we talk about newspapers and advertisements, um, the ways that artists are using newspapers and advertisements um, and other kinds of um, media to change and shape their own identities and relationships and also their relationships with their audiences. We're also going to talk about illustrated books and periodicals and finally um, portraits and portraiture. In every case, not just is there um, a really interesting attentiveness to the story and to storytelling, but also the images form a really, really crucial part of the story. So if you have a chance to get your hands on a copy of the book, I highly, highly recommend it. Not just so that you can follow along at the end when we get to the coquettish horses, um, but also because some of these images are really, really striking and arresting. And they will stay with you as um, they're going to stay with me for a very long time, I suspect. So thank you very much for listening. Um, thanks for your support of the channel. And I hope you enjoy. Happy listening.
I'm here today to talk with Roberta Wu about her new book, Art Worlds. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Roberta, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, thanks, Carla. I'm glad to glad to be talking with you, too. So, Roberta, can you start us off by saying just a little bit about how you came to the field and specifically why art history, why Chinese art history and why Qing art history? Um, well, I guess I'd always been interested in art like um, a lot, a lot of people. And in college, um, I was not actually planning on doing any art history because it seemed so wildly impractical and sort of <laughs> such a. Uh, well, frankly, it's such an esoteric field, but I actually got shut out of the class I really wanted to take to fill my humanities requirements. So I was kind of forced to take intro to art history and um, I took it and it was just sort of I was like off to the races. I just felt totally in my element. So um, I just thought I'll after I graduate from college, I'll just keep on doing this. So um, I went to NYU and um, I decided I would study um, French romanticism. And I was totally thrilled with it. And um, I had to kill off another requirement in grad school. So, you know, the power of requirements. Um, And this was a requirement in my unrelated minor, which was Chinese art. And Chinese art had always found, frankly, deeply and profoundly boring and irrelevant to anything I was interested in. I was very, really into kind of over-the-top, violent, sexy paintings, and nothing could seem further than Chinese painting. Um, <laughs> and so um, I, they, we actually didn't have anyone teaching Chinese art at NYU at the time, so I schlepped to a different department and I talked to Jonathan Hay mm-hmm. and uh, he heard I was interested in 19th century art when I was chatting with him. So he forced me to sit down and look at these Shanghai paintings. And um, at that time, this is the 1980s, uh, modern Chinese art just didn't exist, I think, as far as academia was concerned. It was just totally off the map. And uh, I was frankly kind of horrified at what he was showing me. Like, why are you showing me this degraded junk? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, but I had to take the class (laughs) because I had to kill off this requirement. So I took it and, um, you know, frankly, he uh, converted me. That's kind of embarrassing, but that's, that's how it came about. I I still remember that first meeting with him and him, I can still remember the paintings him showing me and I'm just being just totally taken aback and really a little bit disgusted. <laughs> you know, I think if there's one consistent theme that's come out of all of these interviews for New Books in East Asian Studies, it's been um, simultaneously the impact of serendipity and chance and oh, really? also of um, influential teachers and mentors in bringing people to this field. So it's actually, it's really nice to hear that that's part of your story too. And shout out to Jonathan Hay, who's, <laughs> who's amazing, right? That's right. Everything. So the book that we're talking about today looks at painting and also lots of different kinds of media, really, really interesting media, fans, illustrations, and we'll get to many of them um, in the course of our hour in late Qing, Shanghai. And Mm -hmm. it opens up late Qing, Shanghai as a center of art, of culture, and of entertainment. So what brought you to this particular focus of uh, Shanghai specifically? I mean, you've already said a little bit about this, but how did this become a book-length monograph project for you? Well, what I really became interested in was um, I became very infatuated with uh, sort of the central figure in my book, Reni, and um, I really became very entranced by his portraiture, which just is so different and deliberately startling, I think. Um, And when I started, that's actually what I wrote my dissertation on, and I became very fascinated by who his subjects were. 
And the more I delved and the more I tried to identify his sitters, the more I realized that there were other members of the art world. And so this is what kind of got me going, because um, my question always was, who are these guys and what do they think they're doing? Because if you think, oh, these are other artists, these are collectors, these are calligraphers, um, you realize that he, in his portraits, was creating this collective image of the art world. And that's just that just really got me interested in the whole infrastructure of Shanghai and how art was made in Shanghai and the different kinds of things these guys were making and producing. So did this project start off as a dissertation then? Yes, it was a dissertation. And it really, really was specifically focused on Rennie's portraiture. So but, I, I'm sorry, go on. Oh, but you know, that, uh, that was such a specific topic. I thought for my book, I really have to broaden it out a little bit more. So can you talk about that broadening and the transformation, the shape of the project from dissertation to book? Like aside from broadening it out, were there any other major transformations in how you were thinking about the project and how it was shaped? Um, well, as I started to do more research, you know, I thought, well, this stuff, when, you know, when I started working on this, I thought this stuff all happened less than a hundred years ago. How hard could it be to find sources? <laughs> Famous <laughs> <And> boy, last <laughs> words. <right? laughs> and boy, was I, I was just so wrong. I was just really struggling to find <laughs> um, sources outside of the paintings themselves. You know, and this is a very very much a middle brow art world. These guys were not scholars. They were not literati, the guys that I'm interested in. These were commercial artists painting for the market. So they're not busy sitting down, writing poetry, writing down their life stories. And so one's looking for text, it became really difficult. And um, I was actually reading anything I could get my hands on in 19th century China. And I started reading William Rose books on Hanko. <laughs> and I realized that the source he was using was the Shanghai newspaper, Shenbao. And I thought if he could write two volumes on the history of Hanko using a Shanghai newspaper, what could a Shanghai newspaper tell me about Shanghai? So um, I really just sat down and started going. I, I got a reprint edition of Shambhal and just started going through it issue by issue. And it was incredibly revealing advertisements. And, you know, it's not like it's filled with references to Shanghai painters and the art world, but it, the references I did find were just really fascinating. And it just got me more and more interested in sort of the print world and the print culture of Shanghai and what that could tell me about the art world. So I, that's how I kind of expanded my interest out a little bit more um, to you know illustrations, advertising, anything that these guys are publishing. Great. So let's get into the book itself. Okay. The introduction opens up um, into a group portrait by Reni, and, and you've talked about him already, called Picture of Three Friends. So to get a sort of sense of um, not just why this picture is important, but also how this is going to open up into the broader themes of the book, I think it's probably a good idea to introduce listeners to this guy, right? So can you say a little bit about Reni or Ren Bonien? Um, who is he? Um, what do we need to understand about him as a person and a figure in order to continue on to contextualize him within the larger storyline of the book um okay so he's in some ways he's not that interesting on a personal level uh, in terms of his biography because he was a commercial artist who spent most of his life producing paintings um but in his early life he was basically a refugee like a lot of other artists um his 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 family sort of fled the taiping rebellion in the 1850s his father was killed it was a very traumatic time for him and after this happened he kind of hits the road in the 1860s um and ends up in shanghai in 1868 and when he's there, he creates this huge splash because he's such just such a virtuoso painter who's capable of handling just any subject, really, you know, figure painting, portraits, birds and flower, landscape, 
still life, you know, you name it, he does it. And um, he's just one of numerous artists who are also sojourners in, in Shanghai at this time. So we just find this sort of interesting celebrity figure who is also a professional artist. And he's interestingly not a very verbal guy. <laughs> you know, um, he's he's uh, a very visual guy. He's a painter. So you don't find much written by him. Right. He doesn't put lengthy inscriptions on his paintings, but he just has this incredible um, observant, articulate hand in how he paints and how he just, just sort of addresses the world around him. And he's just this infinitely interesting. You know, the, the styles he can handle, the subjects he handles. I, I find he has this great sense of humor, which I, I was very drawn to. And like I said, I was really attracted to his very smart way of looking at things and creating things. And I think that's what makes his reputation in Shanghai. Great. So the picture um, that he has produced here that opens up um, the introduction is a picture of an elegant gathering mm-hmm. in late Qing, Shanghai. And the portrait, um, as you show us here in the introduction of the book, captures what you call the shifting relationships in this period between the artist his work, and his viewers. Now, that relationship, the the shifts and also the production of new kinds of relationships between the artists and the viewers is very much going to be one of the major running themes of the book. And it also raises a really interesting question um, that you also talk about here in the introduction. And this is the question of sources, right? So if you're interested in trying to get at the experience of and the nature of viewers and viewership, right, in the history mm-hmm. of art, um, that's kind of a challenging thing to do. So can you talk about um, for yourself and for this project some of the challenges and also opportunities of looking um, specifically at issues of audience and viewership um, in this particular context? Um, I think what really um, here what caught my eye is um, when you one of, my, one of my sources, which is a little unexpected, was contemporary guidebooks. You know, so many people are sort of struck by the phenomenon of of the growing treaty port of Shanghai, um, people start churning out guidebooks. And uh, one of the things that consistently pops up in the guidebooks is this new art world. And uh, one of the guidebooks um, specifically talks about how there is this new art world. It's very popular. And uh, he, this author, um, uh, Huang Shuchun, he talks about things in terms of the audience. And he's very, in some term, in some ways, very contemptuous of the audience. And he talks about how um, it's like the common merchants, the butchers and vendors of Shanghai, who are the ones buying paintings from these popular artists. And it, it, it really interested me that he focused so much on the audience and the clientele for these these new paintings of Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of curious, like, well, what is it that would generate uh, this kind of interest from this kind of, again, this kind of middle-brow audience. And if you look at the paintings themselves, these Shanghai paintings, they're really meant to catch your eye, amuse you, entertain you, draw you in. Um, figures in the paintings are constantly looking out at you, trying to catch your eye. They're trying to interact with you. And I was very caught up with the specific visuality of these artworks, which you can see in that portrait of three friends. All three figures in the portrait look out and kind of seem to address us and include us in the portrait itself. 
That's right. Now, all of these themes actually come up really beautifully in the first chapter of the book after the introduction. And this is a chapter that focuses on the realm of painting in Shanghai by looking specifically at the form of the painted fan. So it's a really, really interesting format and medium to look at. Now, you talk here in this chapter a little bit more about Shanghai's development as a major center of art and a market for art in the 19th century. Um, and this is something that um, has a lot to do with um, some of the things that you've talked about already, including the Taiping Rebellion. And you mentioned Reni, in fact, um, you know, comes to this context in part because of the Taiping Rebellion. Um, can you talk very briefly a little bit more about the importance of, um, as you see it, the Taiping Rebellion in producing um, what becomes a Shanghai school of painting? Because that's a really interesting, I think, linkage to make for uh, listeners who are historically oriented. Oh, well, um, so the Taiping Rebellion, uh, you know, I mean, Shanghai is sort of geographically very right in the mix of things there. And you just find that there is this clear watershed The the Taiping Rebellion sort of cuts off Shanghai art from what really has happened before. The, you know, the artists that flee their hometowns because of the Taiping Rebellion, they come to Shanghai for its opportunities. And the art that they produce is quite different from the art that is produced earlier. And a lot of the artists that were very active in, say, the 1830s, 40s, 50s, you know, they die, they get killed, um, they kind of fade away. And it's really this new generation of artists who are there in many ways because of the Taiping Rebellion uh, that start to make art in Shanghai. And uh, I think it's kind of my gut feeling um, that the Taiping Rebellion is sort of this ghost in this time period. It's always in the backdrop. People don't talk about it specifically. They talk about, oh, the great chaos, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always kind of this shadow in the background. And I think you can see it indirectly reflected in the artworks in that the artworks are very upbeat, happy, auspicious. They're kind of obsessively auspicious. And you kind of have to wonder if that if this is some kind of psychological response to the trauma all these people must have experienced just a decade earlier. Right. Obs- you know? Obsessively auspicious. I love that. <laughs> I love that. So let's. This actually brings us nicely into um, the kind of broader world of this Shanghai School of Painting, right? And you talk mm-hmm. um, in this chapter a lot about the different kinds of themes, um, figures, bird and flower painting that characterize this. But um, can you say a little bit more about? what we, again, need to know about the Shanghai School of Painting specifically to be able to appreciate the significance of fans um, when we get there to manifesting and changing and um, uh, kind of embodying this school of painting? Um, well, one reason why I focused on fans was, again, I was I felt that I kind of could maximize the sources I had at hand and that perhaps the fan format was the best way to talk about how Shanghai painting developed. It's not that these artists didn't do, say, larger and perhaps more um, significant works of art, but the fan really seemed to nicely encapsulate um, the personality of the Shanghai art world. So you have these almost ephemeral artworks um, that are that kind of ride this interesting line between painting and personal accessory. Um, and that's what kind of interests me about these. And it actually is kind of hard to get information on fans. Uh, people don't tend to talk about them so much because they seem to be very minor works of art. You know, they can be dashed off very quickly. Uh, They tend to fall apart because people actually use them. Um, They don't take long to paint. They're not major artistic statements. So I think people tend to be rather dismissive of fans. But I think it's those kinds of 
features of the fan. Again, it's kind of fashionable qualities. It's ephemerality. It's used as a personal adornment that makes them incredibly popular in Shanghai. And I just felt like I had a lot of documentation that was sort of relevant to this. And it was a nice way to discuss a specific format and to kind of do this little capsule history of sort of the themes and uh, layout and compositions of Shanghai painting. Uh, the fan format worked really well for that, I thought, in sort of capturing the dynamism and liveliness of how artwork was really bought and used in this way that, that was really integrated into the client's lifestyle. You know, it's very flashy. Uh, you could use it. It's a very actually a very public format. And um, I used some illustrations from uh, that great illustrated magazine, Dan Shijai Hua Bao, to just fans are everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, people from all walks of life use them. And uh, you just kind of get get this glimpse of, of you know, the, the Shanghai painting in action when you look at the fan format. And that's one of the actually um, really interesting things about this chapter is not just the way you're exploring the qualities of the fan that made it so popular um, and so interesting in this period. And you talked about some of them, right, the accessibility, mm-hmm. the visual dynamism, um, the potential for visibility in public, the sort of way that the images on the fans kept the viewer's attention for as long as possible. And you gave you give us some really interesting examples of how to read fans in this context. But one of the other really interesting things that's happening here is that it's not just the fans themselves that are good sources for getting at this. It's also images of fans, right, in uh, photographs from the period um, and also in portraits and other illustrations. And you just mentioned the Dian Shijai Hua Bao as a source for getting at this history of fans. Can you talk about the nature of that source um, for listeners who may not be familiar with it and sort of uh, what makes it so useful for getting at this phenomenon? Um, well, Shanghai painting tends to be a rather, um, uh, I'm not sure what the word adjective would be. It tends to be rather controlled. Um, it, you know, it's still an elite area of image production um, produced by artists whose names we know. And so the kind of themes and subjects they tend to paint um, are often um, ones that are familiar to us from Chinese painting tradition. So birds and flower paintings, portraits, figures. And uh, one response to Shanghai painting in general has been that it seem, it doesn't seem very, quote unquote, modern. They're still doing, they're using the same media, the same formats, the same subjects that Chinese artists have been painting for hundreds of years. And so sometimes people have said that this period is very resistant to modernity because it doesn't, you know, to the superficial eye, it doesn't look very modern. Um, so one way... And, and, and I think people sort of expect modern painting paints images from immediate contemporary life. And you're not going to find that directly represented in Shanghai painting. And for scenes of actual contemporary life, you might turn to things like uh, modern print media. So Dian Shijai Huabao is not the first, but probably the most influential illustrated magazine produced in China in the 19th century. It starts production in 1884 and uh, three times a month. It would just issue pictures of Shanghai, China, images from around the world of sort of just contemporary life. And it's very sensationalistic. Um, it's actually very tacky in a lot of ways, but um, you get this kind of not photographic, but you get this look into contemporary Shanghai life, you know, life on the street. What are people doing? Preoccupations. It's totally fascinating. So I find it very useful into looking at the things that perhaps have been edited out, edited out of Shanghai painting. So you get these great scenes of the theater, you get scenes of uh, like say Nanjing Lu or scenes on the street. And you can actually just see in a lot of these images, um, 
things that probably aren't, weren't, weren't really worth mentioning, like the use of fans. So in some senses, this is a way to get a snapshot of the fan in action. Right. Like it's so ubiquitous that you wouldn't necessarily think to talk about it. Right. Exactly. So you could actually see how, you know, what kinds of fans were people using? How are they holding them? In what context could you see people using or applying their fans? And uh, that was actually a lot of fun to do, just to like flip through the newspaper, through, flip through this illustrated journal and see what people were doing with their fans. And there actually was kind of an interesting consistency. Cool. You know, you find certain classes use certain kinds of fans. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, these feather fans. Um, that you kind of read about in advertisements, uh, fans made from the feathers of Manchurian hawks or eagles. These are very trendy, and uh, but those are meant for men, you know? What kind of fans do women use? What kind of fans do workers use? And so on. And speaking of advertisements, this actually brings us to one of the other really interesting things happening in this chapter, um, which is that you're not just talking about fans and their representations. You're also talking about the shops that are selling fans. And um, some of these shops are producing advertisements, which become really interesting sources. But kind of more generally, can you talk about the importance of fan shops to this story? Um, yeah, I was really very interested in the question of intermediaries. Um, and so if you have these this group of Shanghai artists and they want to ad- address a new audience, a new clientele of a larger uh, a larger public, how do they go about doing so? So you might find that uh, that there are intermediaries that are very active in facilitating these increased commercial transactions, okay, in, in increasing sort of the public face of the artist. And so I would include certainly the newspaper, the illustrated magazine, um, you know, various kinds of publications and and literally retails, retail shops like fan shops. And so fan shops have been around for forever, you know, as a kind of a, a kind of a shop, they've been around since at least the Song Dynasty, I think. And traditionally, fan shops sold things like artist supplies, <laughs> and uh, they also would offer services, like they would mount paintings. Um, and by the by the late Qing, the fan shop takes on this interesting role in not only selling painting, um, not only selling pigments, brushes, colors, and things like that. They actually start to represent the artists themselves, and you find about this. You find out about this sort of more indirectly through other kind of stories or artist gossip. But you actually, in the advertisements, you actually get some idea of just how large a role these fan shops played in representing the Shanghai artist to this larger public. And in the advertisements, in the illustrated advertisements, you actually get a glimpse of the actual what the fan shop looked like. And they're... In the advertisements, there are these very glamorized emporia, you know, selling all sorts of fancy things to, you know, high highfalutin officials and and uh, Shanghai scholars is how they're represented in the advertisements. So it was fascinating to find these advertisements and actually take a look and see, you know, how are these artists doing business and uh, what was their what was their public face to um, their their custom their customers and their clientele. Mm-hmm. And this actually brings us really nicely to the second chapter. Right? <laughs> um, speaking of fans, let's move to celebrity. So chapter mm-hmm. two um, looks at the culture of fame in late Qing Shanghai. And you take us into the strategies for self-promotion by which the artists were making contact with a growing Shanghai audience. Mm-hmm. And you talk a lot um, in this chapter about the connections between the artist as public figure and Shanghai's rising forms of mass media, including newspapers and including um, sort of various publishing industries. Now, a major focus of this chapter 
is a consideration of the ways that artists presented themselves to the larger world in advertisements and also in newspaper articles. And one of the really, really interesting cases um, that the chapter highlights is the case of advertising and activism. And specifically, you bring us into a case where artists um, were kind of... uh, becoming activist around famine relief. So um, I'm just going to hit the ball back to you at this one and, and just ask you to talk about that. What's happening here that you find most interesting in terms of famine relief and the way that artists were both mobilizing in these advertisements and in these media around um, famine relief and also using that mobilization around famine relief um, to kind of promote themselves as well? Well, what I found interesting about this was, I mean, um, I started reading, I started reading Shembaz, I started reading the newspaper. um, And of course, with the archives, what's sort of so great about them is that you usually don't find what you're looking for. But if you keep your eyes open, you might find something totally new and different. Mm -hmm. And so um, I started coming across uh, announcement after announcement about, um, about these charity drives for uh, relieving famine uh, up in the north of China. And uh, it seems that this is sort of facilitated by Shen Bao itself, which is such an interesting newspaper. So they are publishing for free these announcements of charity drives. And we find that artists start to capitalize on their public reputations, and they start to get together um, in the late 1870s, and uh, they start to offer their paintings at a discount, um, they discount their prices, and for buyers, they could go to a fan shop and, and buy a fan or buy a painting at half price, say, and the entire proceeds would go to famine relief. Mm. And there's announcement after announcement of this, and this is totally fa- fascinating because here we find that artists are getting together as kind of a, a unity, as a group, as a community, um, and this is sort of facilitating their own reputations, but also promoting their 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 status as these public figures that are also these citizens of China, you know, and they're in this weird place, this kind of liminal place of Shanghai, this treaty port that's not, not, not quite Chinese, not quite foreign. And here they're making this stand as Chinese citizens that are working to relieve uh, this horrible famine up in the north of China. It's really, really interesting. And one of the things, um, again, that's happening here is not just the kind of self-promotion of artists and their working together for famine relief, but also the changing relationships between and of these artists and their audiences. So can you say a little bit about the way newspapers and other mass media, including Shen Bao and perhaps others, are actually changing these relationships between artists and their audiences um, through activities like this in this period? Well, what's interesting is that you've actually found the artists shaping their their identities and reputations. Um, and uh, before I discovered Shen Bao, it was interesting because you didn't really have much of a sense of actually how artists were going about um, talking to their publics. Uh, the main sources of information I had before I, I kind of stumbled across these newspaper sources was sort of gossip that had survived from back then. And in sort of uh, studio gossip, you find the artist represented in a rather different way. You find people like Rennie and uh, a lot of his colleagues sort of represented as these sort of hustlers, uh, people that are just out to make a, a big buck. You know, it, it, they're not very complimentary images. And so you, I, it's you know, I mean, obviously, I know that their the representation to the newspaper is quite skewed, um, but 
you find that they are they have this actual agency in shaping how they're seen uh, by people in Shanghai. And of course, Shenbao had a national and even international audience. So they're kind of reaching an even larger public. So um, they kind of present themselves in in a as one might say, as more than entrepreneurs and more than, say, hustlers, uh, they represent themselves as kind of concerned public figures mm-hmm. um, and, you know, businessmen, but also something more interesting and diverse than that. Now, some of the images in this chapter are really, really striking. Um, and there are woodblock prints that you're showing us, uh, one in particular I'm thinking of, that actually depict famine victims committing suicide, right? Hanging themselves and throwing themselves into the river. Um, can you talk about the nature of these images um, just to, to kind of get your sense of what you think is most important about them? Because they are so striking um, in the chapter. Oh, that particular image um, is a, it comes from a, a, a book by Catherine Edgerton Tarpley, who um, actually focuses her studies on the North China famine of the, of the late 1870s. And uh, these were actually images that were done to um, separate from the artists that uh, I'm talking about in my book. Mm-hmm. But these are images that were done to encourage uh, donations to relieve the famine. And uh, these images apparently were put up in public places you know, pasted up on boards, on, on kind of billboards, and they were sold. And uh, various versions of them traveled as far as London. I, I think this is really a, sort of an international famine relief drive in this time period. And what's sort of interesting about them is that, you know, a death and trauma is something of a, a topic that really just does not generally appear in Chinese imagery. Um, and so these images are very much about drawing the readers' uh, attention and pity towards the famine sufferers, the victims. And uh, they focus on sort of the opposite. Instead of this obsessive auspiciousness that we find in paintings, they really use the sort of a similar language to discuss death, endings, and destruction. Um, and so you cannot imagine them not being effective. Um, and uh, I think the paintings that the artists were selling were probably a lot for famine relief are probably quite similar to the ones that they were selling, you know, in their main bodies of work. And so this kind of represents the flip side of their images of obsessive auspiciousness. Um, And they are rather devastating images, you know, people killing themselves, drowning themselves, being sold, cannibalism. Um, I only show one, but it's this really beautiful, elegant image. And I suspect that the the illustrator is one that later uh, starts working for uh, the Dianzhi Jai Hua Bao. It's actually not that big a visual world. And it's kind of interesting to see the flip side of those uh, those positive bird and flower paintings in these images of death and famine. So as we move into the next chapter, we move Mm -hmm. from um, really interesting images, including um, this image in particular of death and famine, to other really interesting images, including by the time we get to the end of this chapter, this amazing image of a horse with a coquettish look, right? (laughs) So there's like this weirdly sexualized animal imagery going, which is really, really fascinating. So to get there, to figure out what's going on there, let's start at the beginning of the chapter. Um, So chapter three looks at... At contributions of artists to illustrated books and periodicals. So it takes us into another kind of kind of world of images in this period. Now, the introduction to, of lithography, um, which we've talked about incidentally, but not explicitly so far um, in our conversation, we, the introduction of lithography to Shanghai in the 1870s, as you um, tell us here, was a catalyst in the development of China's popular media and the dominance of Shanghai in shaping those media. And 
the chapter focuses on three related publishing projects in Shanghai in the 1870s and the 1880s. So the first project was um, this work by Chen Yunsheng called, I'll, I'll use the English um, mm-hmm. title for listeners who don't speak Chinese, Ren Jai's Painting Legacy. This was in 1876. Can you talk about what you find most interesting and important about this particular source um, in the context of the work the chapter is doing? Um, well, this particular book was interesting. It's, it's fairly early. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, Shanghai really starts this. Um, well, let me just backtrack a little. Um, after the Taiping Rebellion, the, the wide scale destruction of the Taiping Rebellion included the destruction of lots of libraries. And so we find that uh, publishers in Shanghai are kind of responding to this vacuum of, of publications and they start to rebuild. You know, lithography is a good way to do this. It's a rather cheap and very um, accurate way of uh, producing and publishing books. Um, But we find that uh, Shanghai's lithographic publishers are also very interested in pictures and images because they're serving this um, a mass audience. Right. And uh, we find lots of mentions of them interest, being interested in serving people that have been sort of left out. Uh, Ernest Major, the publisher of Shen Bao, the founder of Dian Jai Hua Bao and uh, the Dian Jai uh, publishers. He, he actually started a publication specifically for workers and women, uh, people that could not be expected to read um, classical Chinese. So we find this huge interest in pictures and images. And uh, we find that artists are a big part of providing these images for this new uh, bloom in publishing. Uh, so Chen Yun-sheng is one of these figures. Um, he's one of the few artists to produce his own book. Um, and he produces this gorgeous book that, um, again, it's haunted by the ghost of the Taiping Rebellion. His earlier paintings are destroyed during the course of the Taiping Rebellion. And so this is in some way a way to preserve his legacy. And uh, through this book, he publishes basically his painting studies. Um, you know, these are sort of the, the root of his paintings. These are the individual studies of trees and rocks and figures that he uses to construct his paintings. So he produces four volumes of these gorgeous um, illustrations. Mm-hmm. And he sets out to make this real statement and he packs his book, not only with basically his entire life's work, but it's packed with uh, sort of these tributes um, by other people, other major figures of the art world that you can just tell that he's painstakingly collecting and gathering. It sounds like he would um, bug anyone who would agree to do it. Uh, he would bug anyone for a preface. So the thing is just almost embarrassingly loaded with prefaces and post faces. Um, and it includes this stunning uh, portrait of him, of the artist Chen Yun-sheng by Ren Yi, who he has bugged for a portrait. So it's kind of this interesting uh, example of the, say, celebrity Chinese artist uh, producing this own sort of homage to himself in this time period. It totally gets destroyed by the audience um, and its own popularity. It, it is uh, knocked off, uh, pirated, copied um, all the way to Japan. There are multiple editions that follow up that I'm sure Chen Yun-Chung did not benefit from. Um, there are multiple editions that follow. And so it's kind of he's kind of eaten up by his own creation in the end. And one of the things we'll get to in the next chapter as we talk about that is the way that portraits by Rene are actually um, kind of trophies, right? I mean, they can mm-hmm. be sort of status symbols in certain contexts. So the other, or one of the other sources that you look at in this chapter takes us back to the Dian Shi Jai Hua Bao. 
Um, and you look here at artist designs of the mid-1880s for inserts that accompany um, issues of the Dientrejai uh, Hua Bao. And these inserts are actually really interesting because they're sort of um, the material form that they take literally put them in the hands of viewers and readers, as you say. So there's a real attentiveness to the material culture of what's going on here that's really, really nice. Now, we've talked a little bit already about this source. Um, Dientrejai was Shanghai's pioneering lithographic publishing house. Mm-hmm. To tell us here, it was established in 1877 by the publisher of Shenbao. So all of these kind of aspects of the story really come together nicely. Now, the chapter argues that Dientrejai created its own readership and also taught that readership how to look. So can you say a little bit about that? It seems like a really important part of uh, the argument that's happening here. Yeah, so Dianxia Zhai from the beginning was publishing, um, it was doing things like uh, reprinting things like the Kangxi Dictionary, right, for the scholars who are trying, still trying to prep for the imperial exams. But it's also churning out all this stuff for a more popular audience. So this could be anything, maps, um, guides to learning English. Um, it's also uh, printing facsimiles of Shanghai paintings, which is quite interesting. Um, you could buy from them kind of very cheaply a lithograph print by Renyi and have it colored and mounted like an actual painting. And they had the very bright idea from the get-go when they start publishing their illustrated magazine, Dianxia Jai Hua Bao, of sticking all these free images, what they call giveaways, um, into the actual magazine. So the magazine itself, you know, I think it would include maybe 10 illustrated articles uh, three times a month. Um, but what's rarely mentioned, because they not many of them survive, is that each edition um, from the, from 1884 onwards, each edition of the magazine would often be stuffed with these inserts and giveaways. And it could be up to 10 pages of things like advertisements, illustrated advertisements. It could be maps. Um, it could be portraits. It could be pictures by famous contemporary Shanghai artists. Um, and you find that the pictures that artists produce for the for these giveaways, um, they are not exactly they don't exactly look like their paintings uh, because again they come in a different format. They're these lithographic prints, um, so we find that they're often more playful, more topical. They could certainly be more raunchy, <laughs> and uh, unless it, I was frankly, a little startled when I started looking at some of these inserts and they cover this enormous range, you know, and they're intended to be amusing. And uh, they, I'm saying that they create their own audience because when they start being published, there's an announcement put up by Dan Jai and they tell people what to do with these inserts. They say, you can uh, take them out, you can remove them, um, you can collect them together in your own kind of an album. Mm-hmm. So they're uh, telling people what these things are and they're kind of treating them like, these pseudo artworks. When you look at a lot of these pictures, they're uh, they're deliberately very playful. They could be of exotic animals. I found those very, and they, I found this very amusing. And a lot of them seem to be determined to be very funny. And uh, sometimes they're quite rude. <laughs> and the one you're talking about of uh, there's a picture of a horse who um, there's this old theme of you know horses as sort of auspicious themes. And uh, sometimes you see pictures of animals of horses rolling on the ground as sort of a, an image of liberation and freedom. Uh, but this is a rather provocative image of a horse. Uh, that seems to be deliberately sort of sexy and suggestive. And uh, it's just kind of this turn in imagery that I don't think you see earlier. 
It's so interesting, right? I mean, anyone who's ever um, lived with a cat is not going to be shocked. Like, there's this, there's this image in this part of the chapter, and these are images um, that you use to open up the kind of third project, which is a collectony of pictorial images um, issued mm-hmm. by this publisher in 1885, the Dian Shi Jai Collected Images of Dian Shi Jai. And these are images that are produced by Ren Shun. It's part of his animal illustration. So it's a really interesting context. But, you know, you turn the page and there's this cat licking itself or doing something or like getting ready to do something that looks like that. <laughs> and so you're like, OK, well, you know, if we've had a cat, cats do that. Like, I get it. You know, if our cat it. but then you put that next to the horse, um, which really does look coquettish. I read that word and I was like, oh, come on, horses look coquettish. And you look, the eyelashes and everything, it really does. Um, so um, you really interestingly integrate this um, into also a sort of way of looking at and thinking about images that kind of turn away from the viewer, right? Um, images of um, backs that are turned, um, people and animals. So for you, rather than, or not rather than, but in addition to just the kind of playfulness and the, <laughs> you know, the, the funniness, right, of these images, if we think about them in this larger context of mm-hmm. like backs turned to the viewer and this sort of withdrawal from the gaze in some way, um, how do we read these in terms of the significance of the larger pictorial ecology that they're part of? Um, well, I, I'm always really interested with Shanghai paintings, with how they toy with the viewer. Um, and, you know, they, they're they interesting is keeping your attention. So they might draw your eye in um, through a number of devices. Uh, one common device is something, something in the painting looking out at you. So a bird looking quite human and looking at you, a figure in the painting catching your eye. Um, and with these particular pictures, I, you know, I, I never kind of set out to write a history of backsides and bottoms in, in <laughs> Shanghai painting, but that kind of what, that's kind of what happened with this chapter. And this is not something that is done in Chinese painting. You know, I mean, bottoms are not an accepted topic, but we find that artists here are sort of crossing a line and, I, I think just a strategy to again, again to catch the art, uh, catch the viewer's eye. Mm-hmm. So they might be sort of indirectly alluding to um, other kinds of pictures. Let's just, you know, I'm wondering if these are kind of allusions to with a, an image of a cat cleaning cleaning itself. What we might see that in daily life is not perhaps something we might think of as making into a fine work of art. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm wondering if this kind of uh, image of a cat cleaning itself, of a horse kind of showing you its bottom, um, is an allusion to sort of pornography. And that's just a, a way of pandering to the audience in a way. That's right. And, and kind of poking them a little and, and playing with them uh, and with these kinds of pictures. And again, using these sort of animal metaphors that are so common in Shanghai painting. And uh, again, there's just so many images that were the, um, the subject of the picture turns its back on us. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is quite frustrating for the viewer when you expect to see the front side of an animal um, or you expect to catch its eye, but instead you just get kind of a, an eye full of its bottom. It's a little startling. And I think it's sort of an interesting and deliberate ploy, again, to keep the, art, the viewer's attention. Right. Um, Frustration can draw you in, right? Definitely, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was kind of interested in sort of the... Uh, can we say the the hostility, <laughs> the, the interesting sort of uh, hostility that sort of also sort of directs towards the audience. Uh, so, but again, this focus on what does the audience think? How does the audience feel? How can we draw their attention? How can we interact with them? Is this really consistent theme? And we find that it plays out differently in these sort of popular print images than it does in the paintings. And that's what fascinated me about these images. 
Um, they're kind of rude, uh, but it's um, this assertion of a different kind of relationship with who might be looking at the picture. That's right. Yeah. So as we move from here to the fourth <laughs> chapter, we move actually um, back to the very beginning. I mean, you talked about an interest in Rennie's portraiture as, as um, kind of in, in some ways the beginning of this project, or at least one instantiation of this project. And chapter four really takes us into not just the nature of, but also transformations and shifts in the portraiture of Jenny and the way we, we might be able to read those shifts as shifts in um, kind of the larger circumstances of artists in this time and place. Mm-hmm. This chapter looks at portraits by um, Rennie of members of the Shanghai art world. Now, his portraiture almost exclusively focuses, as you show us here, on members of this art world, painters, calligraphers, and other colleagues. And these works were confined to a private audience of the art world itself. Now, you um, tell us here in this part of the book that the portraits explore the art world's own, as you call it, circumstances, relationships, and internal imaginary. And we see that playing out in the nature of the portraits themselves. So you talk here about a shift in um, Rennie's portraiture after 1868. So in order to understand um, the nature of that shift, can you talk a little bit about the nature of his portraiture before that 1868 shift? Um, before the 1868 shift, he is doing some portraits. Um, and what's interesting about the portrait is by nature, it's a rather personal genre. And so you're talking about these sort of, uh, you're talking about a professional artist who for the most part, his works are not very autobiographical and they're not very personal. Um, so those kinds of works that are non-autobiographical are the ones that he's doing for a paying clientele. But we find actually interesting mentioned in the guidebook that he is very famous for his portraits and that it's impossible to get a hold of one of his portraits unless you knew him. And so before 1868, he actually does do quite a a lot of portraits. Um, And again, they start this trend of, of him doing portraits for friends family and close acquaintances. Um, he doesn't seem to be doing portraits for strangers. Um, almost never. I mean, you'd have to have some kind of, you'd really have to have some kind of incredible connection with him for him to do a picture of you. It seems, um, right before he comes to Shanghai, he starts churning out the portraits and it seems that he also used them as a way to make connections. Um, but it's kind of like this remarkable phenomenon, this uh, portraiture that is almost exclusively dedicated to the art world. I can't really think of another artist, Chinese or otherwise, who does this with their portraits. You know, and this is a really prolific artist. But you find that in general, his portraits, um, there are a few dozen of them. He doesn't do a whole lot of them. They're of incredibly high quality. And, we, and the thing about portraits is we know who their audience is. Unlike the other images, all we can say is that they're for paying clientele, they're for a mass audience. With the portraits, you can assume that the, that the people that are looking at them are the sitter, the artist, and again, people that know those people. It's not for, again, a broad mass audience. So we have, for the, we have this case study of uh, a group of artworks you know, who we know the audience for. And that kind of makes them unusual. It makes them all the more interesting. Now, you talk about this 1868 shift um, mm-hmm. as a, a way of understanding Ren using more of what you call a contemporary iconography of the urban gentleman and a sustained engagement with the viewer's subject. There's more of an interest in these portraits in the current than now, the immediate. 
What does this tell us? Can you talk a little bit about how we can read this shift in his portraiture um, as a way of understanding the construction of the modern artist's identity more generally in this period? Well, the pre-1868 portraits, which I didn't really discuss extensively, is what's kind of interesting about those is he often uses in those images, I mean, portraiture is all about role playing. Mm-hmm in general, right? It's impossible for a portrait to represent us in our, the fullness of our identities. You have to pick a role. So in his pre-1868 portraits, they're often, he often places figures and people in sort of historical roles. Mm-hmm. After that, we find that the roles shift in this rather interesting way. Um, in 1868, he arrives in Shanghai and his portraits start to reflect that. Um, as we as we mentioned or discussed earlier, not very many paintings talk about contemporary life in a very direct way. It's rarely represented directly. But here, when he's doing a portrait, they almost always are of living people, and he represents them in the here and now. He, after 1868, he rarely represents them as historical figures. He represents them as people living in Shanghai in the 1870s and the 1880s. And so we find this kind of attention to contemporaneity in how he represents them, the very specificity of how they're dressed, the way they seem to turn and talk to us as if we're in a present moment of time. It's quite striking. He represents them as sort of urban individuals walking down the street. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is an interesting shift. Portraits tend to be um, in the in the late Qing. Prior to Reni, of course, they represented people in sort of in contemporary dress and contemporary garb, but often in these very set roles and conventions that sort of um, they're kind of frozen. People are sort of frozen in very generic roles of being, say, a gentleman, a scholar, you know, sitting in the garden. But here we find this shift into um, his subjects represented as people in Shanghai, in the here and now. Mm-hmm. What does this tell us, if anything, about um, a shift in the art world in this period? Can we can we use this to understand some kind of broader shift um, in the environment that he was depicting and also speaking to? Um, it seems like, I mean, it, it was kind of, uh, here he is, this sojourner, right, who's come through a difficult time. And uh, it's the the art world was not this sort of institutional structure, but we do find them sort of brought together by their similar practices, their commercial practices, their uh, media practices. And to hear he seems to be kind of asserting the sense of community that, you know, these are my people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems that for the most part, a lot of these portraits that he did, they were wildly popular with other artists and they seem to have been sort of group endeavors. Um, and, you know, it seems like he really actively took into consideration how his sitters wanted to be portrayed. And he sets them up as these sort of social interactions, these social encounters. And we feel like we're looking and talking to these people. Um, so I, I, I don't they're, they're very engaging at the same time. These, they're these very intimate images. And uh, as he go, goes on in time, they get increasingly personal in this kind of intriguing way. Um, they start to take on roles and uh, they start to take on parts that are not at all conventional or traditional and that they're often quite insulting to the sitter. Um, but he treats them like inside jokes, and which I think that they were. Ooh, ooh, let's talk about this. Um, <laughs> the butcher. Ooh, the cover of the book depicts one of these images. Um, so, okay, I'm going to back up for listeners. I was really excited and really disturbed by this image and like a, disturbed in a productive, positive way, right? If you can imagine mm-hmm. that. So um, his portraits of the late 1880s were more concerned, um, as you tell us here in this part of the book, with the private world of the artist and his inner circle. Um, and you talk about the ways that this may have reflected a 
concern um, with the artist's changing social and economic status in this period. And those changes were not necessarily good. Um, so these portraits, as you just were alluding to, were often unflattering. Um, they were kind of um, disquieting. Um, they uh, depicted beggars and vendors and butchers, right? And you right. take us into one particular example of these portraits that also forms um, the cover of the book, at least my edition of the cover of the book. Mm-hmm. And this is a portrait of um, someone called Dadian as a butcher about to butcher a dog. Okay, so what's happening in this portrait and how um, does this help us understand um, something of larger significance um, that you think is important for us to kind of take away from what's going on here? Uh, it's such a striking uh startling portrait, mm-hmm. um, which is one reason why I really wanted to put it on the cover of the book. Um, I think it really nicely illustrates how you kind of just go, don't walk up to one of these portraits and say, oh, that's interesting. You walk up to one of those portraits and you're like, you're really part of it. And uh, in this particular image, it's pretty common. It's pretty conventional for portraits to be set up as sort of conversations between the viewer and um, the subject, right? That's pretty standard. You know, you kind of look at the portrait and you admire the sitter in some way. But usually portraits are kind of a celebration, an affirmation of the subject. But in these um, portraits by Rene of the later 1880s, um, as you point out, they're often very unflattering and they place the sitter in these deeply sort of, um, what's the word? Insulting roles. Mm-hmm. So to be Portrayed as a butcher, as this individual is, I would kill to find out who this guy is. I, <laughs> I could not track down who he was. I, I keep looking for. It. I'm, I'm guessing that he's another artist, and that's just how uh, Renee did things. But he's not portrayed as an artist. He's portrayed as a butcher. Um, he's portrayed very inelegantly. He's squatting on the ground. This very again a, a pose that you just don't see people doing in portraits. And he has this incredibly sharp knife. And right in front of him is this dog. And uh, we appear to have just walked in on them, and uh, they both look and catch our eye. So whether, as the viewer, whether you like it or not, you're part of this situation. And clearly, he's about to kill this dog and chop it up, and there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> and so, and what's kind of striking is that this is the young man who's actually quite uh, attractive looking, and uh, the dog is is interestingly anthropomorphized. It's, it has this very human expression of agony. Its mouth is open, and it rolls over. And it looks out straight at us like he's begging for help. And we have no choice but to witness what's going on here. Mm-hmm. So you kind of wonder, I mean, uh, there's no documentation, but, but we have the title of the portrait written on there. It's called No Fragrant Flavors. Shang Rou is the, the word for dog meat. And clearly this, this guy who is dressed like a monk, whether he was one or not, is not clear. But, you know, monks are supposed to be vegetarian. They certainly aren't supposed to be butchering dogs for their evening meal. Um, so the the word for um, I think the term for a uh, a dog meat monk that's a term someone told me once in Cantonese uh, that is a it, it's a synonym for a hypocrite. Mm. So you can see that it's not only insulting to be portrayed as a butcher, kind of the lowest of the low, but it's uh, this guy is portrayed as a sort of a the embodiment of a hypocrite, which I just found totally fascinating. I mean, what under what circumstances could you paint this kind of painting, paint this kind of portrait of someone, and pass it off as a joke? Mm-hmm. But that seems to be what was going on with these portraits. These guys took on these sorts of interesting um, pen names. You know, um, Renier's pen name was the the slave to painting, the painting slave. Another friend of his was the calligraphy beggar. They all seemed to have deliberately taken on these sort of humiliating nicknames for each other and really actually had a 
had a good time over it, had a real laugh over it. And I think this is a way of sort of um, undoing, diffusing their kind of uncomfortable positions as these entrepreneurs, these sellers, these these hustlers in the Shanghai marketplace. Right. So we could easily talk about this one painting for like another hour, <laughs> but, um, but we don't have another hour. So let's do, can just briefly talk about the epilogue okay. as a way of coming to our conclusion. Um, now in the epilogue, you bring us into another really um, arresting portrait. And I just kind of want to ask you to talk um, very briefly about this. Um, this is another of Rennie's portraits. Um, and this particular portrait was a portrait of Jin Arjun. As, and you talk about this as a way of reflecting on the limitations of portraiture, um, but also a kind of a celebra- way of celebrating the possibilities of the artist's image. So as a way to kind of bring us to a close, um, can you talk to us just very briefly about what you find really interesting and important about this portrait as a way of sort of um, wrapping up and opening up into the broader significance of um, this work and of this particular figure. Ah, okay. So this guy's an interesting guy. Jenner John was a very well-known calligrapher in this time period. Uh, I think calligraphers kind of get shafted in, in late Qing Shanghai. Sure. They're really, they're very, very big celebrities. And People really don't really work on them. We don't really understand a whole lot about what they were doing and how they were marketing their works. But this guy was a big time figure. Okay, we find him on all the lists of like top 10 artists in Shanghai in the late 19th century. And like everyone, like every other famous artist and painter and calligrapher, Rennie does a portrait of him and he does it a portrait of him in this kind of stereotypical role of the scholar in the garden. And the garden in this case is represented by this large garden rock that stands right next to the calligrapher. Um, But typically for Rennie, he never does it quite straight. Um, And the rock, this enormous garden rock stands right, but there are the only two things in this portrait, the rock and the calligrapher, and uh, they're right next to each other. And they seem to have this rather disturbing, um, inexplicable relationship. They seem to be sort of these twins, the opposites of each other, but at the same time, these sorts of twins. And uh, it's psychologically quite disturbing. Um, And this is what I really just enjoy so much about Rennie. This is a totally visual image that we can kind of look at and we kind of get the depths of the the contradictions and the and what we can't explain about one's identities the sort of the mysteries that are represented by the rock that sort of floats next to him that is not that is so much more than just a rock it is right it totally i mean listeners are probably listening to us and at least some of I know. Them are like what well, it's a, what are you talking it's a rock come on you know a rock but it totally is so listeners like go to the epilogue and if you don't believe us look at this image it's like spooky it's got this weird shadow thing going on the shape is really freaky it's it really is super disturbing it's not just a rock no i mean he's painted in this very realistic way you get this picture of this very fat chubby you know, solid looking guy. And next to him is this smoky, shadowy rock. Is it his double? Is it his enemy? Is it his darker side? Uh, You know, what is it? It's so hard to put your finger on it. And we can sort of logically say, oh, it's a a, a garden rock, but it is so much more, so much richer than that. And I really want to end with this picture because I think it just gives an idea of, of the depths of, and how much, how much change painting and uh, the the place the artist was undergoing in this time period and uh, just how far away these guys are getting from the certainties of where, who you are as an artist, you know, the kinds of paintings that you produce, they're getting so far away from certainties. And uh, these artists were sort of up for the challenge. Someone like Rennie could really embrace that, question that, challenge that and work it. 
and to make this accessible to a broad audience. And that's what I find so sort of endlessly fascinating about this period. And that's a perfect note to end on. <laughs> so, Roberta, as we kind of come to our conclusion, um, there's, of course, a ton of stuff that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? It's a really rich book. Um, but is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you'd like to kind of briefly mention for listeners? Um, well, I hope uh, if you get a chance, I hope people will take a look at the pictures and just sort of enjoy them. They're just very witty, very elegant, uh, very modern images that I think uh, still work really well today. And I think, think it, gives you into, it gives you some insight into the sophistication of late Qing Shanghai. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So now that the book is out, and congratulations um, on Thank the book, that's a, it's a very visually arresting as well as being a fascinating study of this period and this place. What's next for you? What are you currently working on? Um, well, right now I'm finishing up a collection of essays um, with someone else. Um, it's uh, with Luke Gartland, at, um, who's a specialist on Japanese photography, and we're co-editing a volume on studio photography mm-hmm. in um, in. 19th and uh, early 20th century China and Japan. And uh, after this, I'm thinking of doing um, a study of sort of fragmentation and endings in um, in the late Qing and early 20th century China. Ooh, I just finished um, teaching uh, students about Sappho. So I've got fragmentation and oh, really? fragments on that. You should totally, yes, to- definitely write, write that book. And we will talk about that book when you're done with it. So I um, <laughs> hereby officially in advance am asking you for an interview <laughs> whenever that's done. Um, but in the meantime, Roberta, thank you so much for making the time. It was such a pleasure. It's such an exciting book, um, and I'm really grateful to you for uh, making time to talk with me about it. So thanks. It's very kind of you to talk with me. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.